Good evening. And uh, today we're going to be discussing a very interesting aspect of Judaism, which, which might come as a surprise, or I, I shouldn't take that for granted. Maybe it's not a surprise. Um, there is Torah. There's the laws of the Torah. There's the mitzvahs that we must do. Um, there are certain uh, laws that our sages put in place to protect the mitzvahs. And then there's something called appearances. You know, many times when you have, you know, public officials or, or government or government agencies, uh, many times, even if um, they're not breaking the law, they would be very careful about certain practices simply because of appearances. It should not appear that there is corruption. It shouldn't appear that the law is being broken. It shouldn't appear that they are above, uh, above the law. Appearances. And the question is, does that play a role in Judaism? And I'll explain to you why, why that is a question, because you'd think, what's Judaism all about? Judaism is about a relationship with God. And in the relationship with God, all that matters is that God should know, first of all, he should know, he should know my intentions. Um, he, should, he should be the only, God should be the only judge of my actions. Why does it matter, or does it matter, how other people will perceive my actions? Um, the way we are going to uh, discuss this, it's going to be based off of a story that's told in this week's parasha. Uh, it's actually a very tragic story. It's, uh, it was the cause for the death of Moses. It was the reason why, why Moses was not able to go into the land of Israel. And um, the big question that comes up here is, why did this specific event this specific situation, why was Moses punished so severely? As a result, he was told he cannot go into the land of Israel and he would die in the desert. So let's get straight into it. I just wanted to give that, that context in order that we should go into this discussion with this already bothering us. You know, we should, we should kind of be thinking in this direction. Okay, source number one on page three. The Israelites arrived at the wilderness of Zin in the first month. Zin. In Hebrew, it's tzin. In English, I say zin. The people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam was the sister of Moses and Aaron. She was the older sister. She was five years older than Moses. <clears throat> the people were without water. What happened? Why were they without water? Turns out, so, so how did they have water for, uh, for 40 years while they were in the desert? They had water from a stone. There was this huge stone. And uh, water flowed from it. And whenever the Jewish people traveled, as they were wandering through the desert, uh, whenever the, the, the cloud of glory, the divine cloud, would lift up from the tabernacle and it would start to go in any direction, the Jewish people would follow it. And this stone rolled along with them. And wherever they camped, it would stay there. And water would flow from this, from this stone. It turns out that the water that flowed from the stone, of, of from, from the stone, was in the merit of Miriam. Uh, so there was really three people leading the Jewish people: uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the sister. A family business. So, uh, Mir so and and from that, then they realized, wow, you know, we had when Miriam died, the water dried up. There was no more water coming out of the stone. So that's when they actually called it Miriam's well. That, that's where the, a spring of water <clears throat> would come from, from the rock. But uh, before, we, before, before we get caught up in the fact that the water was flowing, flowing from that rock already for 40 years, right now, the water had stopped. And here you have millions of people in the desert with many more millions of animals in the desert. And there's no water. It's over. The people... And they gathered against Moses and Aaron. People quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before God. Why have you brought God's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There is not even water to drink. Moses and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent to the meeting and fell on their faces. The presence of God appeared to them. <coughs> God spoke to Moses, saying, 
you and your brother Aaron, take the staff and assemble the community. Which staff? This is the staff that Moses brought with him to Egypt. Now let me tell you something about this staff. The Perkei Avot that tells us that when God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that was created in the, in the twilight zone, the twilight moment, the exact moment from Friday to Saturday, the exact moment where night began. So like that exact moment, the moment before Shabbat began, God created a whole bunch of stuff. All, of, all things that are kind of like outside of this world. Okay? Things that like are, are not the regular natural situation. Uh, one of the things that was created then is the staff. There's a certain staff that was created, and it was given, it was like a miraculous staff, apparently. And it was given to Adam. And uh, <clears throat> Adam passed it down to his, to his son, who passed it down to his son, etc. Noah ended up with the staff. And uh, Noah took it with him in the, in the ark. And afterwards, he gave it to his son, Shame. It ended up by Jacob. Jacob gave it to Joseph. Joseph had it with him in Egypt. When Joseph died, all of his possessions were taken to Pharaoh's palace. There were basically, you know, the Jews did not get any of Joseph's possessions. Even Joseph's body was taken away. Jethro, Yisrael, who ended up becoming the father-in-law of Moses, was uh, a high-ranking advisor in Pharaoh's court. And apparently he was uh, wandering around one day and he found this staff. So he took it. He took this staff. It was, it was a piece of wood. And he went to his garden and he planted it in his garden. <clears throat> when he did that, miraculously, no one was able to pull it out. No one. No matter how hard they tried, they cannot pull this beautiful. The staff had like certain like images on it or like inscriptions. It had some beautiful inscriptions on, on the staff, which apparently were inscribed by God. Uh, then when Moses ended up in Jethro's home, uh, he walked up to the staff and pulled it out. Pulled it out. So Jethro said, aha, you were able to pull it out. That means it's yours. That means it belongs to you. And when God sent Moses back to Egypt, he told him, and you should take the staff. He didn't say go out and buy a staff for $12.99. He said, take the staff. Obviously, it meant that staff that he pulled out of Jethro's backyard. It was a miraculous staff. With this staff, Moses did all of the miracles in Egypt. And now we're 40 years later. You know, He, he did all the, the templates. And when they left Egypt, that was the staff that he used in order to split the sea. God said, you should raise the staff. And the sea split. So that staff was very much a uh, part of uh, part of the Jewish story. So here, forty years later, God tells Moses, "I want you to take the staff." Yeah. So one second. First of all, forty years earlier, at the very beginning of the journey of the Jewish people in, in uh, the desert, they needed water. So God told Moses, "Take the staff, go to the stone, and hit the stone." And that's what he did. He took the staff, hit the stone. Water started to flow from it, and that's it. They had water. 40 years later, the water dried up and the Jewish people are quarreling with Moses. They're fighting with him. They're arguing, why did you take us out? We're all going to die here. So God tells him, I want you to assemble the entire nation and go together with Aaron and take the staff with you. And before their very eyes, I'm continuing in the second paragraph here, second paragraph, third, third line. And before their very eyes, speak to the rock and it shall yield its water. God changed the instruction. 40 years earlier, God told him to take the staff and he should hit the rock. 40 years later, he tells him, take the staff and speak to the rock. Thus, you shall produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Moses took the staff from before God as he had been commanded. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Out came copious amounts of water and the community and their beast drank. Great, beautiful. And they lived happy ever after.
No. Nope. What's God's reaction to this? I mean, what happens here? Moses caused water to come out of the rock. And now everyone is fine. Everyone has what to drink. But God said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the land that I had given. What happened? <clears throat> God had told Moses that he should speak to the rock. Instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. Why did he do that? We'll see soon. We'll see soon why he did that. But God's reaction to the fact that Moses, so to speak, changed from God's instructions. And instead of hitting the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. The result, the consequence was that he's not going to lead the Jewish people into Israel. Moses and Aaron both. Those are the waters of Meribah, quarrel, meaning that the Israelites quarreled with God, whose sanctity was affirmed through them. Okay. Uh, so, so what's going on over here? First of all, what, is, what does the verse mean when it says, what, what is the Torah telling us when it says, because you didn't trust me to sanctify me in front of the people? So here's the deal. Rashi explains that there was a tremendous opportunity in speaking to the rock and not hitting it. Why did God tell Moses he should speak to the rock? If hitting the rock worked 40 years earlier, so why shouldn't hitting the rock work this time? Why did he tell him to speak to the rock? God wanted that the Jewish people should witness a very important miracle. You see, miracles are not just there to take care of problems. There's no water. Let's, do, let's make a miracle and get water from a rock. No. Miracles are meant to be lessons. The way a miracle happens also needs to contain a lesson, a practical takeaway lesson for those that are witnessing the miracle. If Moses would speak to the rock and then water would flow, so the Jewish people would be able to learn the following lesson. The stone is inanimate. It's a mineral. It does not have free choice. Not only does it not have free choice, it does not experience the concept of reward, punishment, so when Moses speaks to the rock and the rock gives water, it's not like the rock is going to be rewarded for giving water. And if the rock doesn't give water, it's not going to be punished. In other words, there's, there's no real dynamic here. It's not like a, there, there's no relationship between, be, between the rock doing what it needs to do or not doing what it needs to do, listening to God, not listening to God. A rock is a rock. Of course, the rock is going to give water if God wants it. I'm sorry. In other words, if the rock would not do what God wants, it wouldn't get punished either. And the Jews would say the following. If a rock who won't be punished and will not receive reward follows God's instruction, us, whom we do have the concept of free choice, and if you make the right choice, we will receive reward. And if we make the wrong choice, there are consequences for that, for sure. We should heed God's words. We should heed God's instructions. That would be what's called a tremendous kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. This would be a tremendous motivation to the Jewish people that they should follow God's instructions. But here, Moses messed up. Instead of allowing for that tremendous miracle that would be such a powerful lesson for the people, instead, he hit the rock. And therefore, the miracle did not contain this very important lesson. So it turns out that why was Moses punished? Not because he didn't listen to God. It doesn't say that here. It says that he was punished because he caused that a potential sanctification of God's name did not happen. So as we go on in the class, we'll see what does this mean? What is the concept of sanctification of God's name? The Hebrew words for it is Kiddush Hashem. The word Kiddush, uh, we make a, we make a glass of wine at the beginning of Shabbos or on the holiday. We call it Kiddush. Why? <coughs> Kiddush comes from the word Kadosh, which means holy, to sanctify. We sanctify the Shabbat by reciting a prayer over a glass of wine. 
Kiddush Hashem means to sanctify God's name, to make God glorified, more respected. That's the concept of Kiddush Hashem. So to boil it down in a very, in one sentence, why was Moses punished? Because he caused a potential Kiddush Hashem to not happen. That, that's pretty much the deal. All right, so let's go into uh, how the Rebbe analyzes this, uh, this situation. <clears throat> Seemingly, this needs clarification. Why is this matter so severe to the extent that Moses was punished by not being allowed to enter the land of Israel? There are other instances in which Moses seemingly behaved in an undesirable manner. For example, his neglecting to circumcise his son Eliezer when he was judged with a death sentence until Zipporah took a flint, etc. Let's read till the end, and then I'm going to explain what's happening here. Another example is when he said, could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice for them, as quoted by Rashi in this week's Torah portion. Okay. Before we get into what these stories are all about, I'd like to make the following uh, preface. That is, we're talking here about Moses. Why is that important to appreciate? Because the stories we're going to say and the consequences really don't match. Moses never sinned. There's no sin in these three things that we're talking about here. All of the things that Moses did that he, that he should have been punished for or that he was ultimately punished for are all very, very subtle um, issues, which are only issues because we're talking about Moses. See, here's the, here's the deal. God deals with every person on their level. Everyone has the same obligations. We all have the same obligations. We have 613 so We have the Code of Jewish Law. applies to everything. But then there are different levels of people. You have people that have a greater divine intuition, that have a greater sensitivity to godliness, and then you have those that have much less sensitivity to godliness. Those who are much less sensitive to godliness, you know, God judges them based on their uh, based on how tuned in they are to God. Someone who is very insensitive to the divine presence, if such a person does a sin, it's not so severe. And therefore the consequence is usually, uh, I say it's, uh, it's, it's comparable. In other words, it makes sense. It's measurable. But when someone who is a big tzaddik, a very righteous person who has a tremendous sensitivity to God, if such a person does even a very small infraction, the consequences are much, much greater. So here we have a situation where Moses did not sin by hitting the rock. When he hit the rock, he did a tremendous miracle. He provided water for millions of people and even more millions of animals. And yet he was punished because he caused that a potential Kiddush Hashem didn't happen which isn't the sin. But the Rebbe wants to understand is, if we're, it, it, in other words, if he's being punished for an infraction, I've got better infractions that he should be punished for. What are those infractions? When Moses was given the job, the mission, of going and redeeming the Jewish people, he, uh, he had a baby that day, or like a day before. Like really, he just newborn. His second child was born. And he had a dilemma. He said, I have two mitzvahs. One mitzvah is to circumcise myself. The other mitzvah is that I should go and redeem the Jewish people. I should go to Pharaoh. If I'm going to, now, if I circumcise my son, that means I'm going to have to delay my departure because it's very dangerous for a little baby to travel right after a bris. The baby needs to heal somewhat. So he decided, look, the mitzvah of redeeming the Jewish people is extremely important. Therefore, I'm going to travel. We're going to push off the bris. That's what he did. And apparently, he was correct in that conclusion. However, when he finally came to a place where he was going to stop, apparently he was going to stop for a while, like he was already on his journey. So Moses started to look for accommodations for his family. And all of a sudden, this huge snake started to eat Moses up. 
<laughs> and uh, Tsipora realized that for some reason her husband was being attacked in a very miraculous manner. And she realized that the problem was the fact that Moses did not immediately do a bris for his baby son. And instead of taking care of the bris, he was busy finding accommodations for them. For a man on Moshe's level, this was a serious infraction. So Tzipporah immediately took a sharp stone, and she did the bris for her son. And as soon as her son was circumcised, as soon as Moshe's son was circumcised, his life was saved. There was another time. Many years later, the Jewish people were in the desert. And actually, not too many years later. A year and a half, once the Jewish people were in the desert, and the Jewish people were complaining they wanted to get beat. So Moses is having a conversation with God. And he said, he, he, do, he doesn't believe that it's possible to provide the people with meat. He doesn't believe it's possible to provide them with what they really want. It's, it's not possible to, to, that, that they're going to stop complaining. Now, God asked, told him, he says, are you, are you suggesting that I'm not able to do it? In other words, it seems that Moses had expressed himself in a way that was unbecoming for someone of his stature. <clears throat> to go and, so to speak, express doubt in the fact that God could provide for the Jewish people what the Jewish people want. So the Rebbe argues and says, perhaps these two infractions, it makes more sense that these infractions should be the cause for the punishment of him not being able to go into the land of Israel. Why was it specifically this infraction? The fact that he did not allow for a potential Kiddush Hashem to happen the fact that he hit the rock, instead of speak to speak to the rock, why is that considered the big deal? Why aren't the other infractions the reason why he was punished, that he wouldn't be able to go into the land of Israel? So we're going to skip to page six on the bottom. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Moses was not punished for these other incidents by not being allowed to enter the land of Israel. It was only for the sin of hitting the rock that he was punished. As Rashi writes, the verse teaches us that if not for this sin, he would have entered the land. This is puzzling. What was so severe about this sin? Notice, it's not the sin that he hit. The sin is that he hit instead of spoke. Instead of speaking. Okay. Let's, uh, let's continue here. True, God had told Moses to speak to the rock, and he hit it with his staff instead. But this still requires explanation. Is the difference between hitting and speaking so great as to warrant the punishment of not entering the land? Furthermore, his failure to follow God's instructions can be understood. Since a mistake was made, and Moses was speaking to the wrong rock, and no water was coming out, the Jewish people had begun to express doubt. Moses therefore decided to strike the rock, knowing that he had been instructed to do so similarly in an earlier episode. Strike the rock and water will issue forth. And this is talking about 39 years earlier, 40 years earlier, when Moses, when the very first time that the Jewish people uh, were you know, stuck in the desert, they had no water. God told Moses, go and strike the rock. And that was the water that flows from that rock was providing water for them for about 40 years. Let's continue. Moshe's belief was strengthened by the fact that God had told him, take along your staff. Why else did he have a staff with him? Why would the staff be needed if not to hit the rock? In addition, once Moses hit the rock once, water began dripping out. And seeing that this worked, Moses struck it twice until water began streaming forth. Why then was Moshe's conduct considered so severe that it was the sole reason for him not being allowed to enter the land of Israel? So this is the big question of this sicha, of this talk. What's the deal here? Why is this uh, the reason that Moshe was never able to get into the land that he had dreamed about, that he had visions about, that, and that he had actually, he, he saw it, God allowed him to see it, and he so desperately wanted to make it there. And yet, he was stopped from doing so. Why? Because he hit the rock instead of spoke to it. Okay, so in order to understand this, in order to appreciate this, 
The Rebbe begins a very fascinating discussion. It's the first time I've heard this discussion so in-depth, the way the Rebbe gets into it. The Rebbe talks about his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. He became, he became the Rebbe of Chabad, the leader of Chabad in 1920. The fifth Lubavitch Rebbe passed away in 1920, and the previous Rebbe became Rebbe then. 1920, that's when <coughs> communism uh, started in Russia. Uh, that's when the, there was the revolution was a few years earlier. And starting in 1920, 1921 and on, uh, that's when they, the, the Bolsheviks took control over the Russian Empire. And that's when they started to do their aggressive and murderous uh, campaign against organized religion. And the previous Rebbe was at the forefront of keeping Torah and mitzvahs, Judaism, alive in Russia. This was... Uh, something that the authorities were very upset with. And ultimately, they arrested the previous Rebbe in 1927, the summer of 1927, he was arrested. And uh, he was arrested in the city of Leningrad. And he was kept in the Shpalerka uh, prison. Uh, and they interrogated him a lot. And he went through a lot of pain and suffering. And approximately two weeks later, he was notified that his sentence was, his official punishment was that he's going to be sent away to a remote town called Kastanama for three years. Their hope was that with this, they're going to separate him from the city, they'll separate him from a community of Jews, and with this, the previous rabbi's influence would eventually dwindle, peter out, and that's it. And they would have full control over the Jewish community. So uh, let, let's hear how the rabbi explains uh, what's going on here. Regarding the Rebbe's release from prison on the 3rd of Tammuz, in order to travel to the city of exile, Kastrama, for three years, it is related that he was given this news on Thursday, the first day of Tammuz. That actually doesn't make that doesn't, no, I think, I think they, uh, they wrote this wrong. Thursday was... It was the, the final day of the month of Sivan. It was Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, but not the first of Tammuz. It was the 30th day of Sivan. Anyway, so uh, on this day, he was given permission to go home and be with his family for six hours before he would have to go to the train station for his journey to Kastrama, which means that he would be boarding the train Thursday evening, traveling on the train until he gets to this Kastrama place. But the journey was delayed to the third of Tammuz, which is Sunday, because when in response to his question, he was told that he would arrive in Kastrama on Shabbat. Okay, was it? okay. Let, let me just uh, share with you the story. So the previous rabbi is sitting in this interrogation room, and the, the, it was called the NKVD. NKVD. Uh, you know, they, they were the ones that had tortured him, and they had arrested him, and they had all these different things. And finally, they tell him that he's going to Kastrama. So he said, when would the train arrive? So they said it's going to arrive Friday night, Saturday. So the previous rabbi said, I'm not traveling. I'm not going. So they said, what do you mean? He says, I'm not going to travel on Shabbat. So they said, look, we can push it off till Sunday. But you're going to have to stay in prison until Sunday. So the previous rabbi said, fine. No problem. I'll stay here. And he ultimately was released from prison on Sunday. He went home for six hours, and then he went on the train to Kastrama on Sunday night. So now let's see how the Rebbe kind of analyzes the story. So I'm going to start from the beginning of the paragraph here. But the journey was delayed to the third of Tammuz because when in response to his question, he was told that he would arrive in Kastrama on Shabbat. The Rebbe, said adamantly, the Rebbe adamantly refused and said, under no circumstances will I travel on Shabbat even when he was told that he would not be allowed to stay outside of the prison until after Shabbat, and that if he refuses their orders, he will remain in prison for many more days, the Rebbe said, I will sit as long as it takes, but I will not travel on Shabbat. All right, so now here's the question. Was the previous Rebbe justified in refusing to travel on Shabbat? You might say, what do you mean? He's an Orthodox Jew. And Jews shouldn't travel on Shabbat. So that's it. He doesn't want to travel on Shabbat. 
Here, the Rebbe is going to give so many reasons why, technically speaking, logically speaking, and according to Jewish thinking, the previous Rebbe should have left prison on Thursday and not told them that he refuses to travel. Let's see. This conduct appears incorrect. The law is that danger of life overrides Shabbat. Even if the danger is only doubtful, why then did the Rebbe refuse to travel on Shabbat? So let's continue on the bottom of page 10. To explain the question in greater detail, the danger to the life of the person who decides to stay in prison is certain. Here, let's, let's, put, it, let's put the things in context. So the law is that if there's danger of life, you're allowed to violate the Shabbat. If someone faints, someone gets extremely hurt or whatever it is, you're allowed to violate the Shabbat, put them into a car and bring them to the hospital. Not if someone fainted, fainted, you just bring them back. But you know, if, if someone goes through a serious medical issue, medical emergency, their life is in danger, you could do all the violations of Shabbat in order to protect their life. Now, every moment that the previous Rebbe remained in that Shpalarka prison, his life was really in danger. Why is that so? The Rebbe is going to explain that. Uh, he'll, he'll explain, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why, before we get to the Rebbe's words. The, alter, the, the previous Rebbe, when he was sitting at the desk, he was able to see the paper, the document, on which his sentence was written out. Here's what he saw. On the top line, it said, firing squad. And that was crossed out. The next line, it said, 10 years in forced labor in uh, Slovak, some, some very, very far place. And next to it was written, yet, in Russian, means no. And the third line, it said, three years in Kastrama which means that those that had arrested the previous rebel and those that were interrogating him, what they had in mind was to put him in front of a firing squad. A firing squad in Shpalert. That was That's what they had in mind. There was a lot of pressure from Moscow. From, and there was international pressure, huge pressure. There's actually books written about the entire saga of the previous rebel's arrest and liberation. I mean, the United States got involved. Europe, kind of, Germany got involved. There were so many countries that were calling and, and, and putting pressure on the Russians then. Um, <clears throat> so, as long as the previous Rebbe is still in Shpalarka, under the control of those who had arrested him, his life was really, really in danger. Every minute that he remained. On the other hand, right on the third line, kind of the third line of that bottom paragraph here on page 10. On the other hand, the Shabbat desecration the journey entails, when the departure is on Thursday and arrival is expected on Shabbat, was only doubtful. Why? There was still the possibility of canceling the order requiring him to travel on Shabbat after being released from prison. It was possible that he would have been allowed to stay at home until after Shabbat and wouldn't have been required to stay additional time in prison. Therefore, he should have agreed to leave prison despite the condition that he would have to arrive at his destination on Shabbat. See, here's the deal. Imagine you're the, you're the Rebbe, right? You're, you're sitting there in the chair and you have to weigh your options. You have, to, you have to make a decision. What's the right decision? Should I accept the offer of leaving Shpalarka now and officially, in six hours, I'll have to board a train and leave. So here's what the Rebbe could have thought to himself. He said, look, staying in Shpalarka, this is certainly a danger, a danger to life. If I leave this prison, there's six hours to work with the authorities to arrange that I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to board the train. In other words, that's a very strong possibility. The danger to my life is certain. The fact that I might desecrate the Shabbat, that's not certain. There's a possibility that we could stop that, that we won't have to do that. So 
perhaps at a general, when, when a Jew is weighing his options, usually what you need to think about is what is certain and what is doubtful. Danger to life is certain. Violation of Shabbat is not necessarily certain. So what do I have to focus on? Danger to life. And what does Jewish law tell me when there is a real danger to life? Save your life. Don't focus on the uncertain possibility of the violation of Shabbat. The Rebbe continues, the great danger to the Rebbe's life while he was in prison is clear. He had been shown the document with his original sentence of death, which had later been changed to 10 years in Siberia, and then further changed to three years exile in Kastroma. The people that had given their original death sentence hadn't changed their mind. They had been forced by the higher authorities to change the sentence. As long as he remained in the hands of these people in the prison, they would make every effort to change the order. They would be especially motivated to do this after being antagonized by his refusal to leave the prison in order not to have to arrive on Shabbat. Considering that he had already been sentenced to death earlier, it would have been even easier to reinstate that sentence. This wouldn't have required a new sentencing, just the cancellation of the change to that sentence. This shows the great danger to the Rebbe Rayas's life as a result of his refusal to leave prison on his captor's conditions. Based on this, he should have agreed to leave the prison immediately on Thursday because this was a case of actual danger to his life. So that's the first point. The first point is that even though, yes, he was looking at a choice, my life or Shabbat, but it wasn't really an even choice. It wasn't an equal problem because danger to life was real. The, the desecration of Shabbat wasn't really that real. In other words, there was a possibility that we would be able to not do so. Then the Rebbe goes even deeper. Uh, we don't have time to really get into the details over here, so we're going to skip uh, part of it, but let me just explain. There are several issues with traveling on a train on Shabbat. Uh, you're definitely not allowed to board a train on Shabbat. By the way, if, if your life is in danger, like really in danger, you are allowed to go onto the train on Shabbat. Uh, you know, Jews that were running away from the Nazis or whatever it is, uh, they're all boarding trains on Shabbat and they were, you know, traveling as far away from, from Poland as possible, from Germany, from Poland. You know, everyone was running away in all different directions. Uh, the halacha is that if life is in danger, you violate the Shabbat, right? But but here, um, it's before Shabbat. Boarding a train before Shabbat, and the train is traveling. The issue with, with traveling is that there is a mitzvah, a prohibition in the Torah that says that one is not allowed to travel more than 2,000 to 3,000 feet outside of the city. And then there's even uh, an even further uh, a specification. The point is you're not allowed to travel a distance on Shabbat. But here's a little caveat. There's, a, there's this little uh, loophole here. And that is that if you are within approximately a foot and a half, uh, you know, if, if you're on the ground or like about a foot and a half above the ground, then that's a problem. But if you're a foot and a half above the ground, you're traveling higher than the ground, that's not a problem anymore. I don't, I don't want to get into the details of this mitzvah, but the point is that the train where the previous Rebbe would have been would have been much higher than that, you know, that, spe that, that specified height. So he wouldn't even be violating that mitzvah of, not tra of, of, of traveling outside of the city. It wouldn't have been a problem. Which basically means the Rebbe has explained that even according to Jewish law, if he would be on the train, it would be a very weak type of desecration of Shabbat. It would be a very, very minimal and maybe not even a desecration of Shabbat. What the Rebbe is illustrating is, it's fascinating to see how the previous Rebbe kind of weighed his options here. His very life is on the line. And what is he sacrificing his life for? First of all, a mitzvah that according to Jewish law, you're not supposed to sacrifice your life. Second of all, it's a prohibition that there was a lot of ways how 
either that prohibition wouldn't happen in the first place, even if it would happen, there are many reasons, many ways of explaining how it wasn't really a prohibition. So why, why did he allow, why did he refuse to travel? Why did he put his life in danger? Just in order that he shouldn't travel on Shabbat. <clears throat> All right, so let's go to uh, page 14. To explain, even though we said until now that um, life is the most important thing, and there's only three, actually, there's, there's three mitzvahs that one is not allowed to do, even if the life is in danger. Serving idols, um, what's it called? The murder and adultery. These three. But everything else, you have to protect your life. But there's another exception. When there is a case of sanctifying God's name or doing the opposite, there is no room for any other consideration. Had the Rebbe agreed to leave prison, despite being told that he would, ar- would have to arrive on Shabbat, even if he would have eventually been successful to change the plan and avoid traveling on Shabbat, the very fact that he agreed to leave prison, knowing that he would have to travel on Shabbat, would have caused a desecration of God's name. His captors would have bragged about their success in forcing the Rebbe to leave prison with the knowledge that he would have to travel on Shabbat. This is what the Rebbe was endangering his life for, because this was a matter of sanctifying God's name. The previous Rebbe, was engaged in an epic battle with the communists. What was the battle? The communists are saying there's no God. His Torah is not important. His mitzvahs are not important. We are stronger than God. The brute force of our army, of our police force, that is stronger than your spirit. That's what they were claiming. Comes the previous rabbi and he says, no, no. The spirit, that's the strongest. Judaism is the strongest. In fact, in 1921, the previous Rebbe was, was arrested. He was interrogated. And during this interrogation, so the interrogator took a pistol and he pointed it at the previous Rebbe. He pointed it at him. He said, this little toy has made many people talk. There's threatening the Rebbe. So the Rebbe responded like this. He said, that toy intimidates someone who has one world and many gods. But someone who has only one God and more than one world can intimidate me. What did he mean by more than one world? A Jew has two worlds. What are the two worlds? There's this physical world. There's lifetime here on earth. But what happens afterwards? What happens when a person leaves this world? They go on to the next world. The world of the souls. The spiritual world. The Rebbe said like this. That God that's going to send me away from this world. So it's going to send me. That cannot force me to to go against my God. Why? Because I have only one God. The true God. The God that is present here in this world, the God that is present in the next world. But a person who doesn't believe in God, a person who does not have one God, and he only knows the reality of this world, the gun is very frightening. So the the, the previous Rebbe was engaged in this very deep and intense battle of the spirit. He knew the reason why his captors were insisting that he should travel on Thursday night is so that they should go around and say, we forced the Rebbe to travel on Shabbat. They didn't know that technically speaking, according to Jewish law, it wouldn't really be a violation of Shabbat. If someone would find a picture or a record that the previous Rebbe traveled on Shabbat, that would be a huge victory for them. We forced the Rebbe to travel on Shabbat. And the Rebbe knew this. And the Rebbe said, I'm not even going to leave the prisons that you're able to say, oh, we got him to leave prison when he knew that we'd have to travel on Shabbat. 
It was all about appearances. But what type of appearances? Appearances that would have ramifications in how people would view the Jewish people and their connection with God. And therefore, the Rebbe was willing to even sacrifice his life that even there, sh there shouldn't even be the appearance that he is giving in to the demands of his captors that he should violate the Shabbat. And when it comes to when it comes to appearances, when it comes to Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name, Torah law says that one has to give up his life for that. Let's see the Maimonides in source six. It is mandatory upon the whole house of Israel to sanctify this great name. For it is written, and I shall be sanctified among the children of Israel. Uh, Let's skip to the next paragraph. We're on page 15. How are these commandments to be observed? How is the commandment of sanctifying God's name meant to be observed? If an idolater will force an Israelite to transgress one of the commandments of the Torah and will threaten him with death for disobedience, he is obligated to transgress the commandment and not be put to death. For it is said concerning the commandments, that which a man may do and live by them. Live by them, but not die for them. Thus, if he chose death and did not transgress, his blood be upon his own head. Whereat are these words directed concerning all of the commandments, save idolatry, adultery, and bloodshed. For concerning these three commandments, if one will say to him, transgress one of three or die, he shall die and not transgress. When is that the case? When the idolater intends to have personal enjoyment, such as when he forces an Israelite to build his house, or cook his meals on Shabbat, or when he forces a Jewish woman to have marital relations with him and the like matters. But if he merely intends to make him violate commandments, not in order to benefit from him, but he just wants the Jew to violate the commandment to sin, if it happens between themselves, if it's in private, and there are no ten Jews present, it is mandatory for him to transgress and not die. But, if he forces him to go astray from one of the commandments in the presence of ten Jews, he must suffer death and not transgress, even though the idolater did not intend to lead him astray, save from one of the rest of the commandments. All mitzvahs, one has to be able to violate them in order to protect his life, unless the person who is forcing the Jew to do this sin is doing so in order to make a point. If he's doing so to make a public display that a Jew is violating the mitzvahs, the Jew has to be ready to give up his life and not and not do the not do the sin. So the takeaway from the story of the previous Rebbe is that when it comes to Kiddush Hashem, this is of paramount importance. This is above all else. Even if it's it, even even if the, the in other words. Even when what's being weighed against each other is life against a type of sin that's not really a sin. It's just the appearance of sin. The slight type of thing that might appear to others as a rejection of God and it's in public, a Jew should really be willing to give up their life for it. So let's continue on page 16. This is also the explanation for the severity of hitting the rock. This was an action associated with sanctifying God's name or the reverse. As the verse says, because you did not believe in me and sanctify me in front of the Jewish people, this is why this was more severe than when Moses said to God. In other words, it was more severe than, God, than, than Moses having a private conversation with God and saying, do you think you have enough meat for them? Is it possible to make them happy? Or the story of him not circumcising his son, no one knew about it. It was a very private affair, okay? So that's not the biggest deal. Uh, and the Rebbe concludes that the last paragraph, our intention is not to elaborate on Moshe's mistakes, even when they're explicit in the Torah, but rather to emphasize the importance of sanctifying God's name. In other words, what's the lesson that we can take away from this whole story? The fact that when Moses hit the rock, instead of, you know, he hit the rock and did not speak to the rock. And what was, what was the big problem? The problem was, that he had the opportunity to sanctify God's name in public, and it got messed up. It was stopped in a public fashion. 
That's how important sanctifying God's name is. What does it mean to sanctify God's name? Uh, so here, uh, source number seven. Here's a, an interesting illustration of, of what that means. How far, this is from the Talmud, how far does the issue of desecrating God's name reach? Rav said, Rav was a great Talmudic scholar. So he said the following, for a person like me, an important public figure, if I take meat from a butcher and do not pay him immediately, people are likely to think that I did not mean to pay at all. Now, Rav probably has an arrangement with the butcher that he'll pay later. But Rav said, if I'm going to take the meat without pay in full, in, in, in full view of all the rest of the customers that are there, you know what they're going to think? They might think that I'm a thief. And Rav said, for anyone to even think for a moment that Rav, who was a great leader of the community, might be a thief, that's a desecration of God's name. They would consider me a thief and learn from my behavior that one is permitted to steal. So what that means is the following. When it, when it comes to being a Jew, it's not just about being in compliance. It's not just about, oh, tell me which mitzvahs I need to do, and I'll do them. No. It's also about making a good impression. It's also about ensuring that when anyone observes a Jew, they should say, wow, Jews are good people. What does that mean? They act like a bench. They make sure to do things properly. Even, even if when, when one does something, it might be in technical compliance with the law, but it has the appearance that it is improper, stay away from that. Because Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, is extremely important. And uh, I, think, I think it's a tremendous takeaway from this, uh, from this story that uh, we always have to view ourselves as, God, as God's ambassadors. And an ambassador doesn't just have to be in technical compliance with his nation's laws. The ambassador has to make a good impression. He has to make, he has to, he has to make such a good impression that everyone is going to be so impressed and everyone's going to want to emulate the way they behave. And everyone should walk away and say, oh, these people are good people. Those that follow God's laws live good lives just lives. I want to be around such people. And may God help us that we should always make a Kiddush Hashem, we should sanctify God's name, and not the opposite. And with that, we will conclude today's lesson. Thank you all for joining. Thank you so much.